This is Remembering Yugoslavia, the show exploring the memory of a country that no longer exists. I'm your guide, Peter Korchnak. In the dead of summer, one of Croatia's 718 Adriatic Sea Islands stands especially scorched. From its creation during and particularly in the years after World War II, Yugoslavia stood firmly in the Stalinist camp. Yugoslav communists followed the Soviet model in all aspects of life, pursuing intense Stalinization policies. The picture of Stalin was as ubiquitous as Tito's. But having won the war largely by themselves and bent on playing a strong regional role in spreading the gospel of communism, they soon began to clash with the Soviets. So when in 1948 the Communist Information Bureau, or the Cominform, issued a resolution expelling the Communist Party of Yugoslavia from its ranks for pursuing independent policies, everything turned upside down. Stalinism was out, Titoism was in, and the Yugoslav government feared the Soviet Union would invade Yugoslavia with the help of its domestic supporters. The Cominform Resolution isn't just an attack on our leadership, comrades, said Tito at the 1948 Congress of the Communist Party of Yugoslavia. It is an attack on the unity of our party. It is an attack on the unity of our peoples, accomplished in blood. It's a call for all destructive elements to overthrow everything we've happily built to this day. It is a call for a civil war in our country, an invitation to destroy our country. A lot of people sacrificed a lot during the war to make socialist Yugoslavia a reality, and they weren't going to let anyone destroy it. A few months after the split, Yugoslavia launched a brutal purge to eliminate the people who remained, or purportedly remained, supportive of Stalin and allegedly intent on overthrowing Tito's government. The UDBA, Yugoslavia's secret police, arrested and imprisoned thousands of people, from high-ranking officials who supported Stalin openly to regular people overheard cracking a joke. Many of these common formists, known in Serbo-Croatian as IBEOVCI, short for the local acronym for Information Bureau, IBE, seem to have been on the bad side of someone in power, or seen as affiliated with the wrong people, or simply confused about the sudden political U-turn. In many instances, spouses got nabbed as well. The question was what to do with these enemies. The Yugoslav regime established a network of facilities where political prisoners were to be re-educated and put on the right or perhaps righteous path. While a number of existing prisons accommodated in some of them, most common formists ended up in a new facility located on an island where they were subjected to harsh weather and even worse treatment. Goliotok, translated sometimes as naked, other times as bear island, was between 1949 and 1956 the site of an internment camp where Yugoslavia's communist regime sent its opponents for so-called re-education. Imprisonment, forced labor, dehumanization, torture. The new anti-Stalinists were fighting Stalinists with Stalinist methods. Had we not sent the common formants to Goliotok, the whole of Yugoslavia might be a Goliotok today, said one official years later. Goliotok remains a thorn in the side of most Yugonostalgics, to use the words of one of today's guests, a dark stain on Yugoslavia's memory. Or, from another perspective, simply a natural phenomenon occurring in a communist country. In today's episode of Remembering Yugoslavia, 
Goli Otok and its memory. Before we get to the island, a note about the music in this episode. I am using all tracks that are not licensed under Creative Commons with permission of their authors or publishers. They're all titled Goli Otok. You've already heard Goli Otok by Vojvoda, a band from Sofia. Two more Goli Otok tracks will follow, by Valtteri Perspectiva and Rats Magic. Please follow all these bands on social media and double please buy their music. All the links are in the episode blog post at rememberingyugoslavia.com. Nearly 16,000 cominformists were imprisoned between 1949 and 1956. Fewer than 900 were women. The prisons for cominformists at Bileča, Staragradiška, Ramskirit, Stolac, Uglan and Požarevac soon ran out of room amidst the intensifying purge. So a decision was made to build a new, bigger place. Some 83% of all cominformists ended up in the new internment facility on the island of Goliotok. Located in the northern part of the Adriatic between the islands of Rab and the Velebit mountain on the mainland, Goliotok is an isolated, uninhabited island with no drinking water or trees. It is 4.5 square kilometers in size, it is exposed to the Bura wind of up to 150 kilometers per hour, it has inaccessible limestone cliffs all around except a partly sheltered shoreline in the southwest, and the surrounding sea is between 30 and 103 meters deep. The creation of the Goliotok prison remains shrouded in mystery. Though the idea is generally attributed to the interior minister and Yugoslavia's third-in-command, Aleksandar Rankovic, and the logistical execution to the Udba general Jovo Kapicic, the full story is a little more complicated. Speaking with his biographer in 1979, Tito pointed his finger at Yugoslavia's second-in-command, Edvard Kardel, who had proposed isolating all those in favor of the common form resolution on an island. Kardel, in turn, received a proposal to cite a prison for infirmburyists at Goliotok from the Croatian Udbahed Ivan Krajacic and the sculptor Antun Augustincic, who liked marble from the island. It would be interesting to find out which, if any, of his statues are from Goliotok rock. Anyway, there was no official resolution or law establishing the prison until after the fact. Tito simply ordered Rankovic and the Udba to make it happen, and Rankovic delegated the task to Kapicic and two other Udba generals, Voja Biljanovic and Slobodan Krstic. Construction began in June 1949. By then, more than 3,700 cominformists had already been arrested. 200 regular prisoners from Lepoglava prison were transported to Goliotok to work on the project. The first batch of cominformists, comprising 28 Slovenes and Croats, arrived at Goliotok on July 7, 1949. These and subsequent prisoners continued the construction of the facility. The first big transport of some 1,200 prisoners arrived on July 9th. By the end of the conflict with the Soviet Union in 1956, some 13,000 people had been interred at Goliotok. Cominformists were sent to Goliotok via either an administrative or a judicial route. Two-thirds of inmates were Kazhnenici, who were sent to prison based on an administrative decision, typically by the Udba, which served as a judicial arm during this period. Udba agents received bonuses for the number of cominformists they put away. Whether they were real or alleged, didn't matter. 47% of Kazhnenici were Serbian, 22% Montenegrin, and 17% Croatian. Osujenici received an actual court sentence. 42% of Osujenici were Serbian, 22% Montenegrin, and 12% were Croatian. Of the 13,000 Goliotok prisoners, some 550 were women. The women's camp at Goliotok operated for only about a year. For the rest of the cominform period, women were interred at the nearby Sveti Grgur Island and other prisons around Yugoslavia. 
The Yugoslav communists were barred from calling Goliotok and similar facilities camps. Those were labels applicable to what the Nazis and the Soviets had done. Goliotok was one of the work sites of socialist construction. Its official name was Mermer Radilište, Marble Worksite. The place was conceived as a place for re-education. The reality was much different. One former, two-time inmate, Alfred Paul, has described it thusly. You came here as a man who had more or less some self-respect and a past. They try to convince you you're nobody and nothing, that you're a piece of shit, and that the party makes all the decisions about you, your character, and what you will say or do. Cominformists were transported to Goliotok by boat from the port of Bakar, where they had arrived mostly by train in boxed cargo cars normally used for livestock. Beginning about a month into the prison's operation, new arrivals first had to pass through Špalir, a corridor of inmates facing each other who yelled insults and slogans at them, spat at them and beat them, often with sticks and whips. Everyone had to participate in the gauntlet. When the number of inmates swelled to thousands, this became quite an ordeal. The gauntlet was sometimes called the machine or worm rabbit. Guards observed the proceedings. Re-education took place first and foremost through labor. During the day, inmates worked on construction sites, at a quarry, planting trees, or simply moving rocks from one place to another for no reason other than punishment. Tito said it himself, with a smirk no less. The so-called cominformists who appeared were individuals who were adventurers, factionalists, weavers, or ordinary spies, as well as a small number of young misguided people without party toughness or Marxist education. All of these people, of whom there remained but a small number, would consider their treason while performing community work. At the 1952 Communist Party of Yugoslavia Congress, Rankovic said that punishment was an education tool, not retribution, because comrades punished by the party need to be helped to live out their weaknesses through work. In 1953, prisoners built a monument on the nearby island of Rab to the victims of the World War II-era Italian concentration camp. In an interview for the New York Times, the Slovenian historian Božidar Jezernik, whom you may remember from episode 24, Tito and his biographers, recognized the tragic irony of political prisoners building a monument to victims of fascism. Jezernik once interviewed a man who was a prisoner of the Italians in Rab and subsequently a political prisoner at Goliotok who helped build the monument in Rab. He was building a monument to himself, Jezernik said. Rock from Goliotok was processed into terrazzo tiles, which were used in construction of both private and public buildings all over Yugoslavia. For a spell, Goliotok was Yugoslavia's sole supplier of terrazzo tiles. In addition to quarrying and stonemasonry, other industries powered by prison labor on the island included furniture manufacture, carpentry, wooden ironworking, sand extraction, boat repair, fishing, sewing, and shoemaking, both for the prison's needs and for sale on the mainland to generate revenue for the Udba. While convicts worked mostly on the island, on occasion the facility supplied work crews for projects on the mainland, including mines, power plants, buildings, railways and roads. One portion of the Brotherhood and Unity Highway connecting Zagreb and Belgrade near Garci in Croatia was built with Goliotok labor. Goliotok was truly bare. There were no trees here and thus nothing to shade you from the harsh Dalmatian sun. Sunstrokes were frequent, the Bura wind brutal, winters piercingly cold. Even worse was the physical violence. The gauntlet was just the beginning. Those who made it through had to point out the prisoners who had not beaten them hard enough. Indeed, the worst torture inmates suffered on the island was at the hands of other prisoners. Inmates had to regularly confess to the Udba agents at the prison their own crimes and to report on people back home as well as on other prisoners. Who did not work hard enough, who associated with whom, who complained and was thus an internal enemy within the camp, who refrained from discussions during political education classes. Failing to denounce others resulted in a black mark on your own record. 
This too was part of re-education. At the barracks, another torture tactic was employed. The former prisoner Alfred Paul described the boycott as follows. Your fellow inmates in your barrack would not talk to you. They would not share cigarettes with you. You'd eat last. They'd wake you up at night and force you to bend over the bucket into which the barracks pissed and shat. End quote. This was called guarding the bucket. Moreover, boycotted prisoners had to stand when others were seated, they got smaller rations, they got extra difficult work tasks like cleaning latrines, and they were subjected to additional gauntlets. And they had to wear red stripes and black shirts so that other inmates could shun and beat them too. The one way to stop the boycott was to confess your crimes, denounce other conformists, and report on other prisoners. If nothing else broke you, you got solitary confinement in a dark pit. At its peak, there were four camps on the island, each enclosed with a three-meter or nine-foot-tall barbed wire fence, guard towers, and lights. Inmates lived packed in barracks, sleeping in three-level bunk beds. They used collective latrines and open pit with planks across it. Additional buildings were built for administration, guards, storage, kitchen, laundry, infirmary, and workshops. A few years in, a library and a football pitch were added. Water, always in short supply, came from rainwater collection tanks and by boat from the mainland. Petrova Rupa, Peter's Pit, also known as the Monastery, was a camp within the camp, reserved for high-ranking and long-serving communists and military brass, as well as for the most resistant, incorrigible cominformists. Located in a former bauxite mining pit apart from other parts of the camp, Peter's Pit was the most isolated and the most brutal. It was eventually demolished and turned into a sporting field in 1954. As in the Soviet gulag or Nazi concentration camps, below the official administration and guards there was another layer of management, or perhaps self-management. Inmates themselves, in several layers and functions, like barracks elders, hygiene managers, labor foremen, cultural, political, or re-education leaders. Every day at the prison was regimented, wake up at sunup, quick constitution and breakfast, work, lunch, work, rest, dinner, political education and cultural activities, rest and lights out at 2200. The work portion of the day lasted 8 to 12 hours per day, depending on the time of year. Food was bad and lacking, water even more so. The daily political conference, or political time, centered around self-criticism, whereby inmates confessed their own enemy activities and were judged by their fellow inmates. Cultural activities included the collective reading and discussion of official newspapers and listening to official radio programs. Occasionally, inmates organized theatrical performances, watched movies, or played football. Throughout the day, convicts were forced to chant pro-regime slogans and sing songs. These were the more benign among re-education activities. Because of the conditions in the colony, frequent outbreaks of disease occurred, like dysentery or typhus. Some 150 inmates died in a typhus epidemic in the spring of 1951. During the 1949-1956 period, 399 political prisoners died in custody, of whom 287 at Goliotok. While most died from disease, prisoners at Goliotok also died from various injuries, accidents, and suicide. Meanwhile, according to Kapicic, the only victim of Goliotog was an inmate who was beaten to death by other inmates for betraying them. There was a point to having prisoners torture other prisoners. Udba and the regime kept their hands clean. I will not say we deliberately tortured the cominformists, Kapicic said in an interview. I will not, because we did not. Inmates at Goliotok included Alia Izetbegovic, later the first president of independent Bosnia and Herzegovina, imprisoned for nationalism and hostile propaganda, and Shaban Bayramovic, a singer of Roma origin for desertion. It is in honor of Bayramovic, who played goal on the prison football team, that Denis Martinelli, aka Rats Magic, out of Philadelphia, made the song Goliotok, released earlier this year. Yes, the song is about a goalie on goalie. 
You were released from Goliotok when the Udba decided you completed your sentence, when you were re-educated. Criteria included your behavior at Goliotok and how well you collaborated with them. Upon release, inmates had to sign the so-called commitment, a pledge to keep silent about the camp and to collaborate with the Udba in finding additional enemies, basically becoming an informant, informing mostly on other returnees, for the rest of your life. After the release, you were forever branded with Goliotok. Many prisoners returned with various ailments and suffered from the consequences of injuries. Some became incapable of making life's decisions for themselves and would even consult their Udba handlers for advice or permission. Golo Otochani faced a difficult return to normality. They couldn't and didn't talk about their experience with anyone, including their closest family. Until the 1980s, the existence of Goli Otog wasn't common knowledge. There was no public discussion about it, no media attention. It was just an open secret. Their friends and community shunned the returnees. Children wouldn't play with theirs. They couldn't get appropriate jobs, so many ended up doing manual labor. Some couldn't get a job at all. Some were driven out and had to move to a new town. A few Golo Tochani did pursue successful careers. Alfred Paul became a painter and designer, Mihailo Simic a journalist, Ivo Kuvacic a university professor, Jovan Shevalevich a psychiatrist, Valibor Machukatin a sculptor, Dragoslav Mihailovich a writer. After 1956, Goli Otog was temporarily closed, but the revenue generated by prison labor proved to be too lucrative. So the place was renamed to the Penitentiary and Corrections Facility and repurposed into a regular prison for criminal offenders, juvenile delinquents, and occasional political prisoners whose charges were mostly related to ethnic nationalism. In 1970, the ever-poetic CIA called Goli Otog Tito's Devil Island. It has since been called Tito's Gulag or Tito's Guantanamo. As you heard in episode 36, Dream of the Yugoslav 80s, after Tito's death and through the ongoing economic crisis, Yugoslavia became much more relaxed and open in terms of public discourse. Artists, activists, academics, journalists and others began tackling heretofore taboo subjects, including the country's core myths. Tito, now dead, the party, the national liberation struggle and the partisan mythology, the Ustashe and the Chetniks, Brotherhood and Unity, and Goliotok. Of course, first came the punkers. In 1979, the Rijeka-based band Paraf performed at its concerts the song Goli Otok. Forty years later, the former Paraf member and the song's creator and writer, Walter Kociancic, re-recorded the song for his band Valtteri Perspectiva. The song is owned by Dallas Records, which kindly gave permission for its use here and published by Mars Music. Naked Island, the sun is shining, the rock is burning, that's the Naked Island, mother. You can hear the pounding, the rock is breaking, plaques are made, Buddha is blowing.
In July 1982, the Washington Post reported on, quote, a fit of public soul-searching about one of the most controversial episodes of Tito's long rule, the physical and psychological tortures inflicted on thousands of pro-Soviet communists who opposed his break with Moscow in 1948. After Tito's death, novels, plays, memoirs, essays, nonfiction books, and newspaper articles tackled the period of the Tito-Stalin split. And among those themes, the topic of Goliotok emerged. You have novels by the Slovene authors Branko Hoffman and Vitomil Zupan, Kosovar Teki Dervishi, Serb Slobodan Pavlievich, Dragan Kalajic, as well as Antonije Isakovic, whose best-selling and award-winning novel Tren 2 was after its publication in 1982 compared to Dante's Inferno. Isakovic, who also wrote a play about the treatment of Stalinists after 1948, told the Post he saw the spate of works about Goliotok as a kind of a national cleansing or catharsis and compared it to the soul-searching that went on in the United States following the war in Vietnam. We have to tell the truth about our past, he said. You have non-fiction books based on personal experiences by the Slovene Igor Torkar and by the Bulgarian-Macedonian Venko Markovsky. History books by Radovana Radonjic, Dragan Markovic and Branko Petranovic tackle the historical aspects of the camp. The film comedy from 1984, Balkan Spy, stars Bata Stojkovic as Ilya Čvorovic, a former Stalinist and Goliotok prisoner who spies and reports on his tenant, a returnee from France. Oh, smika, nekide džura, nek blokira aerodrom, postanar je pobego, ja ću ga pratiti. Ilya becomes increasingly paranoid, takes matters in his own hands, and shenanigans ensue. In 1985, the award-winning film When Father Was Away on Business by the erstwhile admired director Emir Kusturica told the story of a boy whose father makes a disparaging comment about a newspaper cartoon attacking Stalin. He gets ratted on by a jealous love foe and serves three years quote-unquote away on business, i.e. at a labor camp. We never learn exactly where except that his family once visits him at a mine near Tuzla. The prison at Goliotok was closed in 1988, and the following year the premises vacated. Goliotok became a memory. It is in the 1980s that the story of Tiha Gudac began. Oduvijek sam bila didino dijete. On je za mene bio tu od početka, a ja sam u njegov život ušla na kraju, nakon nekog drugog, meni nepoznatog vremena. It's the writer and director Tiha Gudac in the opening frames of her documentary film Goli, released in 2012. Gudac was born in Zagreb 30 years prior. I grew up without a father in a way. My parents uh, divorced when I was four and my father was not present in my upbringing. And in a way, a uh, substitute father for me was my grandpa. He had scars on his body and I knew that he was in a prison. This was something that we, the children, were told that he was in a prison and it was very clear that this was something very painful. And for that reason, we never asked about it. And I, I knew fragments which were coming our way even as kids, such as that there was a name on the tombstone, on the family tombstone of a girl which was who was two years old and she was my mother's sister. And somehow the date of her death was the same as the date of the birth of my mother. I mean, obviously we would ask, and they, they told us that she was killed the same day that my mom was born because grandpa was in a prison. 
So obviously, I mean, even as a kid, and I think I'm a very sensitive individual and a very empathetic individual, probably I was born that way. I mean, you just don't want to dig in those, into those things. It's not per se that, that I felt any kind of formal ban. I think I was too small, too, too young to perceive any formality. It was just on an intimate level. You could understand this is something very painful and you don't want to touch it. You don't want to bring more pain or make your grandma, grandpa, mother sad. My grandpa passed away before my teen years and my grandma was with us even into my 20s. But I think this feeling was the same all the way until that age. Gudetsu's grandfather died in 1992. In the 1990s, the abandoned facilities on the island were looted and pillaged, and in the ensuing decades, the place fell into disrepair and neglect. The wars of Yugoslavia's dissolution overshadowed any potential for dealing with the history of Goliotok, both by historians and the population at large. Among other things, it was hard or impossible to ethnically label the victims or the perpetrators because both came from all Yugoslavia's various ethnic groups, said the historian Martin Previšić for Balkan Insight. Relatively few Croats had been interred at Goliotok, so the site wasn't as important for official memory-making in Croatia. An additional factor, at Goliotok, communists were both the jailers and the prisoners, ideologically opposed as the cominformists, or the alleged cominformists, and the Titoists were, in the nationalist discourse they were all communists and hence, well, good riddance. The anti-communist discourse has little room for sympathy with Stalinists and their suffering. It wasn't until about the mid-aughts that serious memory work about the island emerged. On the political front, in 2003, Slovenia offered survivors a reparation payment of 6,300 euros for each year spent at Goliotok. In 2012, Serbia followed suit with an offer of about 2,500 euros per year of internment. In 2011, a memorial plaque sponsored by the government of Croatia was placed on a wall at the former prison saying, in memory of victims of the communist regime who suffered at Goliotok on the occasion of the 23rd of August, day of remembrance of victims of all totalitarian and authoritarian regimes. I'm going to leave aside the problematic equating of all those regimes and point out that the Prime Minister of Croatia has recently been making a commemorative visit to the place on that European Union-level observance. On the cultural front, in the 1990s a number of memoirs by former prisoners came out, most prominently a lengthy work by Dragoslav Mihailović in Serbia. The 1996 Croatian film Sedma Kronika, The Seventh Chronicle, fictionalized the story of the only person in 40 years of the prison's existence who managed to escape. In the early aughts, the last survivors began dying out in large numbers, and a generation of their grandchildren started coming of creative and remembering age. And as the ensuing 2010s decade progressed, talking about Yugoslavia became more acceptable as well. More survivors published memoirs. I've counted three by Croats, Josip Ercegovic Milos in 2002, Josip Zoretic in 2007, and Vladimir Bobinac in 2017. One by a Macedonian, Toma Batev, in 2006. And in 2018, the English version of a decades-old memoir by Radovan Hrast, a Slovene Goliotok two-timer, was published on demand as Stripped of My Time, a survivor of the political prison on Goliotok. Goliotok has featured in foreign fiction as well, most recently last year in a novel by international Booker Prize-winning author David Grossman. More Than I Love My Life is a story of Vera, inspired by the life of Eva Panić-Nahir, a Jewish woman from the former Yugoslavia who was imprisoned at Goliotok for refusing to denounce her husband. The series of passages in which Grossman recreates Vera's life on Goliotok, wrote Alex Clark in The Guardian, where she is forced to stand on the top of a mountainous outcrop in baking sun for hour after hour in an attempt to break her will, take on a horrendous dreamlike quality. Documentary films appeared. Panic Nahir's story centers the film Eva from 2002. The 2009 German film Horror, The History of the Prison Island Goliotok, features eight former prisoners. 
And in 2010, the Albanian director Shkelcim Krasnici released a film documenting a group trip of 40 former prisoners to the island. The documentary is available on YouTube, albeit with no subtitles. Two documentaries came out in 2012. Gradimonovi Svet, We Are Building a New World, by the Slovenian director Marko Kobe, and Goli Otok, translated as Bear Island, by the Croatian director and photographer Darko Bavoljak. The latter film is built on three sources. The former prisoner, Alfred Pal, who is on location at the island and speaks about his experience there, a sit-down interview with Jovo Kapicic, the prison's creator, and archival materials about the prisoner named Milovan Zets, including police reports and his own writings. The juxtaposition of the two sides, the prisoners and the jailers, makes for a powerful and dramatic narrative. The film is available with English subtitles at cultureunplugged.com. Bavoljak also heads the Association of Goliotok Prisoners, Ante Zemljar, in which capacity he has called on authorities to establish a memorial center on the island. We want to preserve the memory of the slave work of the prisoners and build a memorial center, lest something like this should happen ever again, he told Reuters. Other associations have been repeating a call to turn the island into a memorial area as well. In 2014, Croatia's government solicited development proposals for the island. Famously, one of the proposals pitched turning the isolated island into a gay tourism hub. It never came to be, and nothing else did either. Tiha Gudac's documentary Goli came out the same year. Its description reads, Sixty years ago, a man went missing for four years. He returned a changed man, carrying along a painful secret, built his family's life around this unspoken secret, and died without revealing the entire story to anyone. Naked Island is an investigation of his granddaughter, a mosaic made of clues, family photos, and intimate testimonies of a tight-knit group of people who were brought together by the same place, the mysterious island, and consequences that this place left on three generations. The documentary has uh, different titles in English and in Croatian, or any most ex-Yugoslav languages, which is important. In English, obviously, it's called Naked Island, but in Croatian, I'll just call it Croatian for the purposes of the conversation, although it's the same in Serbian, Bosnian, and other languages in former Yugoslavia. It's actually called just Goli. The same word is used as an adjective for anything naked and as a plural for adjective naked. It basically has the same form as it would have for naked people or bare people, people who have bared everything, like taken off their clothes and stood bare in front of you. Unlike other documentary works about the island, which tend to be journalistic, historical and descriptive, kind of like this podcast, Gudac's Goli is personal, a story of her own family. It's basically a very, even an uncommonly or an unusually intimate and honest level of storytelling in terms of what that place did to individuals, humans, and in particular, few generations of a family of my family to this day. The first place in terms of storytelling and my focus and importance of, and, and in my voice as a storyteller was given to individuals to the human story and uh, it was less political and less investigative on a formal level than maybe some other documentaries which were done on the subject. I mean I've worked on the film for six years and I've gone through a lot of research and uh, I became a bit of a scholar of the subject and of course all these very studious books that I could have read and, and films or, or other types of audiovisual investigative material that I came across was very useful for me. 
But at the end, the reason why I I had to go back to the start, which was the reason why I even uh, started the journey of making that film, and that is because I'm a granddaughter of a survivor. My grandparents, obviously, they had good friends, people who were a part of our households. And when I was well into my film school, there was a a journalistic piece and uh, all of these friends, best friends of my grandparents, there was a photo of them together saying naked island survivors speaking up for the first time and this was a huge shock for my family uh we we called them and we said so wait you were all there together and this was 60 years later and they said yeah maybe it's time that we tell the story i talked to this woman called vera winter who was uh, really a best friend of my grandparents she and her husband and she said, yes, both me and my husband, we were both there. We were there together with your with your grandpa. And then she called another family friend and she said, the, the granddaughter of Marian is here and should we share the story with her now? Vera Winter, ne Barišić, worked at a federal ministry in Belgrade. One of her superiors there was a Stalin sympathizer. And at some point she told Udba officers at her office she listened to Radio Moscow. She spent three years at Goliotok and Sveti Gurgur. At that moment, my ability to tell the story in terms of filmmaking, my ability to be a film director was secondary concern. At that moment, the only thing I felt was this is something that needs to be recorded. Since they were only going to talk to me, obviously I was the only one who could start making a documentary. It took me six years. It was a very big uh, emotional process, intellectual process, even probably therapeutical process. Yeah, I went through a lot of anger, I went through a lot of frustration, I went through activism, the need to straight all the wrongs of the history, of of history's right. But then in the end, I just went back to where it started, and it started with a granddaughter and her grandpa. And I realized that uh, that's the value of this film, of, of my story, of my impulse, why I'm making it, of my decision to really sacrifice a lot in order for this film to be made and the reason why all these people decided to speak out for the first time i mean some of them did speak before in in some more formal ways because there is no formal ban or problem to talk about it these days but the spirit that was between us and uh, the commonness that we had was really special so i i just said okay i'm not a journalist i'm not a an investigator, I'm not a historian, and everyone else in my film is here because we're family. So it really made a family story, which I think is quite unusual in how honest and open it is, and quite specific in that way. And I guess that was the reason why the film was, so to say, so successful. Recall that some 13,000 people did time on Goliotok between 1949 and 1956. And if you multiply that by all their family members at the time who were absolutely had to be impacted by the imprisonment of an individual, and then what happened to those families, which was very specific and kind of copy-paste, and then you take up to three generations of individuals who were influenced by that trauma, And that's a lot of people. And a lot of them never talk to their fathers, grandfathers, brothers, mothers, sisters. And it seems like that was my experience, that in former Yugoslavia, my film was a conversation for many families and individuals, which then they unfortunately 
never had the opportunity to have with their loved ones. One part of the story I felt missing from the film was the reason for Marian Fuchkan's imprisonment at Goliotok. Yes, this is a question that remains unanswered. I did not put it in the film. I did find the actual reason through the research that I've done. My grandpa, which is in the film, he was a young and upcoming uh, businessman. During the Second World War, there weren't too many people who were able to gain education for obvious reasons of the war. He was uh, well-educated, and uh, when the war ended, uh, he was headhunted to be among the young managers who were setting up factories. And he would be given a factory for six months and then move on to another factory and so on. You may even know some of these factories from the supermarket shelves. Badel, Kalnik, Krash. And he was a protégé of a minister called Rada Zhigic, who was actually really a part of the clash between Tito and Stalin. And he was a part of a group who was uh, sympathetic towards Stalin. So basically everyone he was protecting was, uh, they were all sent as a group. And my grandpa was a part of that group because he was a protégé, because all of his promotions were signed by this minister. And it was the same for Teta Vera's husband, Auntie Vera's husband, Gabriel, who's in the film. Rade Zhigic was a Croatian communist and partisan. After the war, he was in the Politburo of Croatian Communist Party's Central Committee, Minister of Industry of Croatia, and a reserve Yugoslav People's Army General. During the Tito-Stalin split, he advocated for reconciliation with the Soviet Union. He ended up at Goliotok in 1951. According to eyewitnesses, no one in the welcoming gauntlet so much as touched Zhigic. Everyone just spat at him. In 1954, still on the island, he committed suicide. At any rate... For me, I had a total anticlimax when I found out what the actual reason was. Uh, So I just felt like I don't want to bore people with the (laughs) details. But basically what I did put in the film was that it was a time of paranoia. Everyone had not just the right, but an obligation to point fingers at others to show their loyalty to the system in order to protect themselves. So in in this uh, time of paranoia, for as, as little as one sentence, people would be disappearing. I didn't name the reasons for most people in the film, because mm-hmm. they're so banal. Another thing that gets all but one mention in the film is the jailers. Way back in episode 16, Diaspora Voices, I spoke with Andrea Jovanovic, who had met Kapicic, albeit briefly and without conversing with him, through her grandfather, who had been a partisan and who later emigrated to the UK. So my grandfather, while he was alive, had a pretty bad habit of understating things. So he'd invite me to something, you know, he'd say, let's go for a casual lunch, and it would turn out to be at an embassy. And I'd turn up in some scrappy t-shirt that said, you know, partisan FC or something, and be very embarrassed. And this happened a few times, and he once invited me to lunch. And again, I turned up uh, not overly well-dressed, and it turned out we were having lunch with Jovo Kapicic, who was at least on paper in charge of Goliotok. Of course, I asked Andrea what they talked about, but unfortunately, she didn't speak Serbian well enough at the time to follow the conversation. Jovo Kapicic was a Montenegrin communist who fought in Tito's army at Neretva and Sutjeska and participated in the Igman March. After the war, he was proclaimed a national hero. He coordinated the arrest of the Chetnik general Draža Mihailović, whose rehabilitation some 60 years later he opposed, and he was promoted to the general of the Udba, the Yugoslav Secret Service. It was in that capacity that he organized the Goliotok internment camp. In interviews, Kapicic would say Goliotok had been a success. 
To his dying days in 2013, he would claim no torture or any other mistreatment of prisoners at Goliotok ever took place. They're tales for children, he said in one interview for B92 television. A scam, he called them in another. He also said that those people were all there because they were a fifth column waiting for Russians to arrive. In Darko Bavolyak's documentary, Kapicic called the infirmarists bacteria that infected a healthy organism. It seemed uh, much more difficult for your mother and your sister to speak about this, especially on camera, than for the two people who actually were at the actual prison and the, and the actual island. So what do you think that is? I mean, they experienced the worst, you know, horrific things uh, during that time. They were beaten, uh, tortured, and forced to torture others, you know, had to live in, uh, in silence. And then it seemed <laughs> that the words were kind of rolling off their tongues, but it seemed much, much more straightforward for them to speak about this uh, versus your, your family members. So in my film, I have uh, two survivors. It's Alfred Paul and Vera Winter. Uh, Alfred Paul was a Jewish man who survived the Holocaust as the sole person who survived the Holocaust from his family, his entire family. He was also imprisoned in fascist camps during the Second World War. And then he went to Naked Island twice uh, because he was an artist. First time he was imprisoned as a part of a newspaper office where they were all collectively sent there and then he went out and he didn't obey he he wasn't reporting on others and spying and then they sent him them back and he was then tied with my grandpa in chains on the boat and that's how they met so at the time that i'm talking to alfred paul for the film he's actually one of the first people who did openly start talking about naked island even during yugoslavia through his art so he started making haunting, really impressive pictures at the age of, uh, his, he told me at the age of 40, and he was well into his 80s when I was talking to him. So he is definitely a man who has gone through so much that Naked Island is unfortunately a part of it. And he, he told me, I've, I've learned so much from these people. He told me when, when I came to Naked Island, I wasn't afraid. Because they, the only thing they could have done to me was kill me. He had nothing else to lose. At that moment, he had no family. He's lost everyone in his life. And he was already a part of fascist imprisonments. And now he was being captured by the anti-fascists. So it was just a, a theater of, of absurd for him. So he was much braver. He spoke through his art. And I think he's processed it and thought about it on many levels in years prior to me talking to him. He just shared his story on a more intimate level with me as a granddaughter of a friend, as, mm -hmm. as a person who babysitted my mom. You may recall that Alfred Paul had starred in Darko Bavoljak's 2012 documentary Goliotok. And Teta Vera, Auntie Vera, she was among the first people who wrote about it in 1989. She wrote an article and sent it to a Serbian newspaper, which at that time, literally, they published the first article about Naked Island, and then she wrote a response. So she already started processing it. Auntie Vera, she told me, I will talk to you once, only once, and I can't repeat it. I mean, you have to take into account that these people are I mean, unfortunately, both of them passed away. Alfred Pyle never even saw the film. He passed away while, while I was making the film. So there's a different kind of life experience talking to them. And also 
they're the survivors. I'm only guessing if I was able to talk to my grandparents openly, that they would not have been the ones falling apart in front of the camera. I'm just talking about my grandparents uh, and certain issues that that I I have witnessed them going through going through while they were still here. I think they've built up a lot of strength to deal with certain issues in order to survive. While as for us, we've inherited things that perhaps we have not found the tools to deal with and have not found the right way to survive them yet. And I think the reason, the, the need for, for the film, for me on an intimate level, I think comes from that place from a place where I need to find my tools to deal with this and to survive and build a better life, literally for myself, because I, it was so obvious that there is trauma even in the transgenerational trauma, even to th three generations on. Maybe, maybe it sounds a little narcissistic if I say the film was a tool and blah, blah, blah for us to build something. But in fact, the film was a conversation. I'm super grateful to my family that they were so open that they said, you can film this. And they said, we will not talk to each other while you're, you're working on this. So it was literally the first time that they opened up. It was the first time that I talked to my sister about certain issues and my mother and my father. And it's just, we needed the conversation. And it's just, let's say, coincidence that it was recorded. Given that it's been, what, six years now that the movie's been out, what has stayed with you through these years? What have you learned? What's sticking with you? Well, the first thing is that I really want to take a step back from this personal moment and say that at the end of the day, it's, I mean, it's a film. My first stand in life is emotions about everything. I'm deeply emotional. And I had to take a step back while making a film because being uh, just emotional and uh, deeply this and that uh, can be very responsible towards the audience. So it had to be a film which had a universal value in Yugoslavia and on a wider scale. It had to be a film about family silence, about family issues in general. It had to be a good film. That's what I tried. <laughs> I'm not saying uh, necessarily that's what it is, but that's what I strived to do. And I took a lot of mentoring and uh, a lot of uh, taking a step back from the material and the editing. And that's why it took me six years to make it in order mm -hmm. to cool down and watch it as a film. So... That was a big learning experience for me as a filmmaker. It changed my life path because since then I've continued directing documentaries. It helped me find my talents, identify my talents. On a personal level, uh, for the people in the film, I think it really did help us find peace with the subject. Some family relationships did change on a completely intimate level. But to see the survivors of Naked Island, Auntie Vera did uh, live until the premiere of the film. And she was able to see the days of the different press that came out uh, connected to the film. And she, it was just such a rewarding experience. It's like a, I could see a circle of life with all the terrors of, of Naked Island. And, and when she, she held the newspapers in her, in her sick bed 
and, and she couldn't believe that the papers were saying there were they were victims and that this is something that shouldn't have happened on the level of the society. She was literally repeating it there, saying we were victims and that this shouldn't have happened. And this is something that these people never, they, they never thought they will see the day when someone says this, because these people were outside of, of the system. Naked Island as a phenomenon was generally looked at as a communists fighting communists. And then when Yugoslavia uh, fell apart, it fell apart because of uh, individual national interests and uh, individual needs of nations which were part of Yugoslav federations for their independence. So the national question is, is a big question and an oppressed question during the decades of Yugoslavia. So, so these people were not national heroes in any of the countries. They were communists. And communism fell down, so this was a communist issue which had to, they fell through the crack. They were nobody's heroes, and nobody dealt with them, and nobody apologized. So somehow when the film came out, and all the, a lot of the press was really focused at the human sacrifice and the human, the human level of the tragedy. So... That was a very rewarding experience for me to be with them and see the day of that happening. Gudacis Goli did well on the festival circuit. For example, it got the Heart of Sarajevo Prize for the Best Documentary at the Sarajevo Film Festival, it was Best Film at the Liburnia Film Festival, and received Best Director, Best Producer and the Audience Award at the Belgrade Documentary and Short Film Festival. I do think it made... Uh quite a big impact on on level of social awareness of what Naked Island as a camp was. But unfortunately, I, I mean, it was completely, there is no memorial center there. There is, uh, if you go to big former camps, uh, usually there is a museum or some kind of a learning experience is available there. On a formal level, on Naked Island, that has not happened to this day. But since the film came out, and I know for a fact that is because of uh, my film. There have been student educational camps on Naked Island every summer, throughout the summer. And I get a lot of response from people from all over Yugoslavia basically saying, I now understand my family story. I understand my father, grandpa, mother, sisters, and so on. Or, or they're even telling me different things on a very personal level. A lot of people who were or are opposed to Yugoslavia, socialist Yugoslavia, use it as, a, as an example of, uh, or to highlight the, the evils of, of that regime. Uh, so what's your take on that part? And more importantly, since your film is very personal, uh, on the personal level or on the family level, what's your, your and your, maybe your family's uh, view of Yugoslavia of that time period? I think the film is in line with that, which is that it's not a black and white picture. Uh, it was both good and bad but it had a tendency of hiding the bad things with the flashy good things very well because we were not behind the Iron Curtain. We were an open communist country, so you could buy Levi's and listen to Rolling Stones and drink Coca-Cola as opposed to any other communist country in Europe and, and wider. But the society permitted, or actually the system permitted, the shine of Coca-Colas and Levi's to hide everything else. 
but I did show both sides in my film. I thought it would be unfair to just say, oh, you know, just point fingers and, and paint uh, a picture which was not complete. I think we are very clear about that there was a very criminal part of it. And on a personal level, I have no, no doubt that Tito was, among other things, a criminal. But somehow I just can't be bothered with him or them. I think that what's happened in Yugoslavia and with Naked Island and Tito's role is just something, unfortunately, that repeats itself through history. It's a rule of humanity. And uh, it's a rule of crisis, of times of crisis. The question of when the crisis comes, are we here to remember humanity? Do we have the strength to stand up and stand in the name of humanity? Or do we protect our asses? This is basically a quote from the film where Alfred Paul says, when the crisis comes again, there is only one question. What do you protect, your face or your ass? And this is unfortunately something that really is repetitive throughout history and throughout nations. That's the human nature. So for me, I just felt that I want to give the political context, but politicians are given too much space and normal humans, small people whose lives are influenced or, or, or basically controlled by the decisions of politicians are not given enough space. So I said with my film, it's our time. You are the people in white suits. You are the people in fancy cars. You are the people in parades. I will explain that you existed and to a certain level, because I will, never, I will never straighten that line, to a certain level, I really don't care what his name is. A guy in a suit, people with parades, in hysteria, shouting for something which should be shouted against, have been appearing, are appearing, and will continue appearing throughout human existence until there is enough people who learn that in those times you have to protect your face and be a human. That was my thesis. And my family, it's really not a part of our conversation, like Tito, no Tito, communist, no communism. We also have a bit of a sense of humor. So, you know, <laughs> after communism, there was war and now we have other issues. Like you said, always something... Yeah, no bitterness. I mean, yeah. the, the, I was very clear with myself that I want to end the film by leaving it behind. And that's why the last shot of the film is going away from the island. And the point is to strip it away, you know, take it all off and no bitterness. I just, I don't see the value of it. There will be other people dealing with historic facts. I cannot straighten out that history. What I can do is, on a personal level, leave it behind. Scholarly, journalistic, and other nonfiction accounts emerged as well. A number of history books included Goliotok in their accounts of the early socialist Yugoslav period. 
In 2003, Goliotok survivor in Croatia Ivan Kosic published Goliotok Najveci Titov Konclogor, Goliotok Tito's biggest concentration camp, a historical account interspersed with eyewitness accounts and personal experiences. In 2010, Tamara Nikčević published in Serbia a historical account centered around the testimony of Jovo Kapičić. The Slovenian historian Božidar Jezernik's Goliotok Titov Gulag came out in 2014 and was translated into multiple languages, though alas, not English. The same year, the up-and-coming historian Martin Previšić published his doctoral thesis at the University of Zagreb. The history of the Goli Otok Cominformist prison camp 1949-1956 was a major source of information for this episode. Previšić later turned his dissertation into a book published in 2019 at Faktura Zagreb. Previšić was born in 1984. Also in 2014, a major exhibition at the Institute for Contemporary History in Belgrade documented crimes committed by Yugoslav communists, mostly in Serbia but also at Goli Otok. The person to open the In the Name of the People exhibition was none other than Dragoslav Mihailović, he of the lengthy memoir, reprinted in this decade. The exhibition website included a full list of Goliotok prisoners. You can still view an archived version online. In 2016, a satirical online petition in Croatia called for reopening of the prison at Goliotok to house people who have robbed the country of its wealth and impoverished the society. The authors only feared the prison would not be big enough. The 70th anniversary in 2018 of the common form resolution that expelled Yugoslavia from its ranks and the 70th anniversary in 2019 of the opening of Goliotok was a big year for commemorations. Radio Television Serbia released as part of its program Quadratura Kruga a two-part documentary about Goliotok, featuring a historical narrative, interviews with survivors, period footage. Croatian memory nonprofits Ante Zemljar and Documenta said the concentration campsite should be turned into an island of memories, education and educational tourism that is suitable for this place. In 2020, Darko Zlojutro's Goli Otoku Beogradu, Goli Otok in Belgrade, included interviews with survivors, an account of a visit to the island and original photographs. Also in 2020, the Zagreb NGO Documenta created a multilingual interactive online guide to the history of the Goli Otok prison camp. The guide is based on Previšić's book, offering a short, basic and digestible introduction to the topic, including maps. You can find it at goli-otok.net. Along with virtual guides launch, Documenta reiterated, in an open letter to the government of Croatia, its long-standing call for the protection of the site and the creation of a memorial center there as one of the most important places of Croatia's recent history, marking the repression by Yugoslavia's communist regime of thousands of individuals. And earlier this summer, another book came out documenting the experience of a different group of prisoners at Goliotok, Kosovo-Albanians. Kosovars constituted less than 3% of all inmates. Though Goliotok became a regular prison after 1956, in the late 1970s and particularly in the 1980s when unrest in Kosovo and nationalism in Serbia intensified, a range of Kosovars found themselves there. Speaking for Balkan Insight about the book titled Distorted Shadows, Kustrim Koliji, head of the nonprofit that published it, said, Apart from the suffering and disturbing stories of people who experienced Goliotok, it is also a document of the past. First and foremost, it is a call for public institutions to not let people die without testifying. Aside from all that, Goliotok today is primarily a photogenic tourist attraction. I've always wanted to go and see it, but more so since I met the man who was ostensibly in charge of it. Andrea Jovanovic again. We took a boat over, a private boat over from Sveti Jure, which is one of the smaller towns you can get a boat over from. And uh, I was pretty appalled at how 
tasteless everything is. The way I heard it, two brothers have kind of got a monopoly on everything there. There's a restaurant. The name kind of translates into something to do with sort of sizzling, which is not particularly funny since obviously the heat and the weather and the lack of shade was a big mm-hmm. punishment there. And it is absolutely sweltering. I mean, it must have, it can't have gone over 40 degrees, but it felt like 50. Mm-hmm. We were completely burned. There's a little tractor pulling a little train, which is slightly overpriced, which takes you around the main sort of sites. Graffiti art- artists have really done their work, but mostly, you know, we just saw a lot of tourists sitting at this restaurant, which was very, very, very crowded. There are only two toilets on the island. You have to pay to use them. And people on the beach having a great time. It was unexpected, I suppose. Nicholas Herman went to Goliotok in search of his grandfather's past. His experience, recounted in an essay in the now-defunct Culver Journal, was similar to Jovanovic's. The smoke of Grilcevapi lingers by the harborside restaurant, where day-trippers eat beneath bright parasols emblazoned with brand names Ožujsko and Karlovačko, popular Croatian lagers. On the other side is a small concrete building, the word souveniri, souvenirs, hand-painted above its door in wobbly white letters. A woman in an orange bikini wanders past on her way down to the rocks for a swim. I don't know what I was expecting, but it wasn't this. Tourist operators brand the island the Croatian Alcatraz. But, as Herman writes, once I'm clear of the harbor, the comparison is baffling. This place is worlds away from that other infamous island, a major museum filled with merchandise and audio guides. Apart from a single room displaying the odd artifact and a 10-minute film on loop, Goli Otok is a ruin. Earth and weeds fill the building, swallowing tools and machine parts. Paint peels from pockmarked walls. Light punches through collapsed ceilings. Girders, bent and brown, grope in the shadows like vines searching for the sky. And everywhere, rubble, on every rotten floorboard and piled in every corner. There exists no infrastructure of remembrance, no map to hold my hand. I move from ruin to ruin, forced to fill the cavities with my imagination. On Instagram, photos with the hashtag Goli Otok are a mix of ruin porn, showing the abandoned premises of the former prison, and vacation photos and selfies of mostly young women posing with the ruins in the background. Many seem to have been taken on organized tours of the island. In its entry for the island, Fodor's writes, among other things, Like communist history, consider a day trip to this uninhabited island that was a Yugoslav prison just off the coast of Rab. The treatment of these prisoners is wholly unknown, as very few prisoners live to tell of their experiences, but a stone quarry indicates that prisoners were forced to do hard labor quarrying stone. You can make a short trip to this legendary gulag by taxi boat with one of the many charter companies. Various private tour companies on Kirk and Raub Islands and on the mainland in Yurevo and Seň advertise excursions to Goliotok and sell souvenirs that trivialize the suffering of the Goliotok prisoners, according to Documenta. Farmers use Goliotok to graze their sheep on the dry grassland. Party boats sometimes cruise by here as well. And the swimwear company Svimea includes in its line of bikinis named after Croatian islands a set named Goli. It's impossible to tell, but based on the product name, one might assume the promo photos of the green, polka-dotted bikini set were shot at Goliotok. Today, the Camp on Goliotok exists in collective memory as a place of cruel sadism, hard physical labor, dehumanizing treatment of inmates, and the atmosphere of fear and denunciation, writes Martin Previšić in his book. It demonstrates that, in the defense of independence, or the fight for it, it is possible to go too far. I 
have not yet been to Goliotok. I have mixed feelings about it, a perverse curiosity, an intellectual repulsion, and a dose of fear. The facts are now known about Goliotok. That chapter of Yugoslavia's history is closed. What remains to be known is us. What stories remain to be told, or not, as the case may be, are about us. The paradise that as a child I imagined Yugoslavia to be had been built atop the hell of Goliotok. That too is part of Yugoslavia's memory. Next. They were also projecting and performing their adherence to processes related to European integration, but at the same time to some sort of identification with Europe. Kosovo has been on the receiving end of not one, but two supranational entities and ideologies, Yugoslavia and the European Union. On the next episode of Remembering Yugoslavia, performing Yugoslavia and Europe in Kosovo. Tune in wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe to make sure you don't miss out. That's all for this episode of Remembering Yugoslavia. Thank you for listening. Find additional information, photos, links, music embeds and the transcript of this episode at rememberingyugoslavia.com. Outro music courtesy of Robert Petrich, tracks by Rats Magic, Valtteri Perspectiva and Vojvoda used with permission and gratitude. Buy their music. Additional music by Kevin McLeod and Petar Alargic licensed under Creative Commons. Special thanks to Factum Documentary Film Project. I am Peter Korchniak. Ciao.